Hello and welcome to the Succession Fit Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Hine. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, Jason Carver. Jason has extensive experience in mergers and acquisitions and is a managing partner at Pure Financial Advisors in San Diego, California. Jason was previously the managing director and head of M&A at Carson Group, where he was responsible for overseeing M&A activities across the firm. So Jason's going to talk to us about the different types of buyers, succession and continuity planning, as well as the M&A world which I love so much as well. I'm so fascinated by it. So welcome, Jason. Glad to have you on. Tom, thanks for having me. It's great to be with Looking you. Looking back at your experience at Carson Wealth, what were some of your biggest takeaways and lessons that you learned that you can share with the audience? I guess the place I'd start is really you know, with Ron. I mean, Ron is such a visionary, such a luminary in the, in the industry. He's kind of polarizing in a lot of ways. I don't understand why, but you know, he's a uh, you know, to me, he's, he's just a, a great person, a, a great leader, and someone who really has a vision for the future of the business, um, not just you know the business of, of Carson Group, but the business of wealth management. Being there when I was and just the, the trajectory that Carson was on was just a, it was exciting to be a part of and exciting to see sort of someone with such a big vision for where the business is going and where, where he could take Carson Group. To me, that was a, a big takeaway was just you know, making sure you really understand where the puck is going and not necessarily where, where it is. And the other thing that was really unique about Carson, unique at least for me, was which, which starts with Ron, is, is the culture. Uh, of the business, the culture of the people, not just the the stakeholders, the employees that they were able to recruit and retain, uh, but also the the advisors. Uh, I think they were very uh, selective about who they wanted to work with, um, how they wanted to work with them, and so you know that, that you know that can be taken uh, you know big takeaway. No matter what industry you are in, no matter what you're doing, what company you work for, you know to me it's about having a vision, being a part of something bigger than yourself as well as you know, recruiting and retaining the best people that you want to work for and work with. And that made me think when you said the word about the buyers, can you talk about the different types of buyers out there that you've seen? I'm fascinated too by what I see you know, unfolding in the landscape. So maybe you can touch upon that before we get into other trends. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it certainly become a lot more of a diverse buyer pool than you know, where it was you know, 10, even five years ago. Uh, there's just so many different options out there for for advisors, wealth managers, RAs to to explore. Um, you know, we, we start on kind of I look at it as a spectrum. So if you start on sort of the purely financial spectrum, you've got a lot of private equity firms coming into yep. the, the space. Uh, you kind of almost see even just today, I think I saw two different private equity deals get announced. Um, so um, you know, there's a lot of financial buyers coming into the, into the space um, you know, for obvious reasons, right? The recurring cash flow, recurring nature of the revenue streams, the stability of the businesses, even in spite of the markets, um, you know, really exciting time to be in the business. And I think a lot of you know, very sophisticated financial professionals are starting to, to recognize just the direction the space is heading. You take a step away from the financial buyers, then you kind of go to these quasi-financial buyers, but, but very hyper-specific in the RA industry. I think of my, my former firm, Focus Financial, as kind of being in that that space. You know, Hightower, you could throw out there, a Wealth mm -hmm. Partners Capital Group. Uh, these are buyers who, while they're financial and in, in, in kind of in their makeup, you know, they're very hyper specific in the in the wealth management space. Then you go to uh, you know uh, strategics, right? We're really st strategic acquirers that are really focused on acquisitions. 
So, um, you know, some of the bigger names out there like Mercer or uh, Wealth Enhancement Group, you know, a lot of their success has been built around acquisitions as opposed to, uh, you know, organic growth. Yes, they do have organic growth, but really when you look at a lot of their growth over the last, in the recent history, a lot of it's been dominated by M&A. And then you've got, you know, uh, kind of a, a lot more regional buyers getting into the market, you know, regional and local buyers. And so, and, and then on the very end of this other end of the spectrum, you've got hyper strategic, which is like banks and trust companies that are, are always going to come in and out of this space. So I'm sure I didn't cover everybody, but, you know, there's, there's a pretty wide spectrum of buyers out there. And ultimately, it's up for up to the seller, up to the advisors who are looking to, to sell is to figure out what makes sense for their business, depending on their size, depending on where they're at in their evolution, uh, to really come down to what what buyer makes the most sense for them. No, excellent. You covered a huge spectrum, which was what I was hoping you would, because even like you said, compared to five or 10 years ago, it's a whole different marketplace. So when you look at that private equity money, what's happening, are there any types of trends? I have my own suspicions. You know, positive or negative that you see going on there. I want to hear you answer. I'll throw in a couple ideas um, that I've heard about too. But uh, a trend can be a good thing or can be a bad thing. You know, it depends what side of it you're on too. Yeah, and, and full disclosure, uh, Pure Financial, the firm I'm with, is is backed now by private equity. So uh, I have to be careful what I say. Uh, no, we, uh, you know, as far as trends, um, yeah, I mean, I think there are positive and negative trends in the industry. I think. Private equity, I kind of said it before, private equity coming into space is really a, a, a good credentializer for, for the industry that we're all in. It kind of tells you that, you know, clearly, you know, smart money chasing after the you know, wealth management space is a good thing, right? And it, it clearly means that they see opportunity here, not just today, but but far into the future. So that's, that's I think, a really good positive thing. And it's ultimately helping create more capital in the space more opportunities for sellers to monetize their business. So there's a lot of, a lot of positives about private equity coming to the space. It's, on the flip side, you know, private equity, they do have uh, certain hold periods, right? Their typical hold period is five to seven years. And so for a lot of advisors who are looking much longer term, that could be a problem. Or if there's concern around uh, even from a client perspective that, hey, you know, you're going to sell the next five to seven years and then you're going to sell again. And, you know, if it's another private equity firm, it just creates, you know, from a client experience perspective, there could cre uh, create some some angst there. So you just have to be careful about if you do want to explore that private equity route, you know, who are your private equity partners? What are they going to impact in your business? Um, how long are they going to be in the business? Um, and, and how can you relay the, the right message to the clients that uh, you know, doing the transaction is a good, a positive thing, not just for you, but for, for them as clients as well? Great. Yeah, there is. The other thing that I was talking to one of the corporate attorneys the other day in, in the Hartford area, and he said even in the medical field, like orthodontics and all these things, he's seeing the same type of roll-ups. And I wrote about this in my book a couple of years ago. When you and I spoke for that, but even car washes, you know, they're going through the same aggregation roll-up. So clearly the, the low interest rates help everyone. The question is who can really make the model work? When you see these deals going on, I'm always curious, do you think people focus too much on just valuation itself, the numbers, and not understanding the cultural fit? I know Ron talked a lot about this. I know I believed in it for years. And so what do you think? happens if people focus just on valuation? Have you seen this in your own career where the numbers might make sense, but the culture isn't really a good fit and what can happen that way? 
Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a huge problem, um, to be honest. I think there's a lot of firms that do focus too much on the numbers. And, you know, at the end of the day, this is a people business, right? I mean, you want to, yeah. you, you get in the business because you want to service clients and you want to do right by them. You know, if you're focused too much on what's going into your pocket at the end of the day, I think there's inherently a conflict there with what you're trying to do for, at the end of the day, for your clients. You know, longer term, I think, when you look at just focusing on the numbers and you're not spending enough time on, you know, the cultural fit or the business fit or the philosophical fit or what, you know, what the direction of the business you want to take and you're just focused on the numbers, you could miss a lot of things and it could obviously create a lot of issues for the business down the road. Focusing on, you know, for me, everything, you know, when everything when it comes to M&A should start with culture. And culture to me is there's two sides of it. There's the personality fit, you know, who, who are the, who are the folks you're actually going to be working with on a day-to-day basis? And then secondly, what do they represent in terms of how they see the world, uh, their service model, their, the business model, how they run investments. And to me, all of that kind of ties back into culture. You know, if you're a adamantly fee-only firm, I don't think it's going to work if you try to do a deal with someone who's not fee-only. So, you know, culture to me is, is everything. And so, I think too many sellers I've seen, especially, you know, there's been this ramp up of activity here uh, as we get towards the end of 2021 of sellers looking to, to monetize because I think a lot of that was driven by the, the change in tax, uh, potential capital gains tax treatment. And I saw a lot of firms come to market where they, it was clear they were hyper-focused on just maximizing the dollars that they receive. And I think medium, long-term, you're going to start to see I hypothesize you're going to start to see some of those deals unravel because there was such this rush to get in. There was just such this focus on getting maximizing uh, the liquidity event as opposed to really solving what the core issues are for your business. Now, everybody's core issues are different, but if you're if you're not focusing on what are the core issues, what are the things you're trying to solve for and what are the opportunities? I think you're you're going to be in a heap of trouble uh, down the line. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because I do, whenever there's a rush, right? We talk about whether it's the uh, California gold rush or people rushing into IPOs or whatever, right? Whenever there's a rush of people, some have great timing and they get it to happen. But statistically, if it's a bell curve, not everyone can have great timing. But as you know, it also got a lot of people motivated to do something. So one of my other questions that you've come across, I know, and I have, why do you think advisors in general absent tax law changes or whatever, why do you think they either delay or ignore completing a succession or continuity plan? And do you think it changes by the size of their firm? You notice any difference between a firm, let's say a billion dollars or more, and then delaying doing that? You know, a firm's 500 million to a billion. I'm curious if in those tranches, do you see any difference of advisors delaying to do these important types of plans? Yeah. So as far as why people delay or advisors delay the succession planning side of things, I think it's a couple of things. One is it's <laughs> advisors tend to be afraid of their own mortality. You know, it's just like everyone, right? You, you, you don't want to think about, you know, the, uh, the unheard of or the, you know, the, the th- things that can happen to you. It's like, why, why doesn't everybody buy life insurance? I think it's very, very similar. It's hard, right? Sitting down and thinking it through, what is your post, uh, you know, retirement post uh, entrepreneurial side look like uh, for you, or life look like for you? Uh, it, it can be a challenging conversation and and, uh, and 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 exercise. And so I don't I don't think everybody's really comfortable doing that. The other part of that too is a lot of advisors got in this business because they're entrepreneurs at heart. Mm-hmm. They want to build something. They want to you know be kind of the the master of their domain. 
and uh, and and they like that 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 sense of authority and that sense of just freedom and flexibility to do what they want with their with their business. And I think it's hard for people to let go. So whether it's monetizing mm-hmm. or empowering somebody come in underneath you and take over certain parts of your business, I think there's a lot of advisors and, and people in general, but advisors especially who struggle with that because they've had to do it all, kind of be all things uh, to, to get to where they are. So oftentimes it's it's hard to let go. I was saying the letting go means they have to fill that time right with other other things they want to do. So I think of it as a, a bifurcated process. Letting go of one thing is important, but what do you do to fill the time and energy to something else? Yeah, that's the case, whether it's it's empowering someone underneath you or eventually needing to transition out of the business. It's all about finding something that's going to you're going to be passionate about, something that's really highest and best use of your time. And, you know, I think it's it's also important to allow other folks to really step up you know, provide that, uh, that empowerment, provide that opportunity for them to really take over some ownership. And, and that's where owner, ownership of responsibilities that is. And that's where I think a lot of people get it wrong is, and, and they end up losing people is because they haven't found a way to allow people to step up and make mistakes and take over things. Um, because these advisors are just so, so used to being in control and I'm used to you know, doing it. Be, and I think I can do it the best way. To answer the second part of your question about you know, do I see it different, you know, the, the succession planning process uh, different for different size firms? I would say yes and no to that. I mean, I, I definitely see succession planning as a problem across the spectrum in terms of size mm-hmm. of firms, right? Whether you're a sole practitioner with 50, 75, 100 million, or, you know, you're an owner in a multi-billion dollar firm, I've, I've come across firms in both kind of size ranges where they haven't really done a good job preparing for succession. Now, I think it's, it's clearly much more rampant and in sheer size of numbers in the smaller advisor realm. I mean, there's just clearly a lot more advisors out there. But even there, I think you know they're they're sole practitioners for a reason, right? All the things we just talked about yeah. in terms of the control and desire to to uh, have a say in everything. It's the reason why they kind of haven't really in part perhaps haven't really brought in other people to take over some of the reins. And I think that so you're going to see and you will see and you have seen. A lot more advisors that haven't really had clear succession plans in place for yep. the smaller on the smaller end, rather than the uh, the larger firms. So the larger firms have figured out how to delegate. They figured out how to recruit and retain good people, uh, and inherently they've they've solved a little bit more uh, more so than smaller firms their succession. But like I said, there's still there's still issues in in you know billion dollar firms. Given that. Where have you seen some of the biggest mistakes made? I'm, I'm always curious, is it over price, you know, or is it over uh, differing views? Like, you know, when people first meet for a few times, they have an LOI and they're like, hey, this is going the right direction. I'm very curious. And this is generic, you know, nothing confidential. But in deals that didn't go, when you look back, where were the obvious cracks in the foundation, to, so to speak? Or what were your lessons, you know, looking back from what you've seen or even read about? I'm very curious in that area. Well, there's there's two sides of how I think about that. There's the the side where you're talking about mergers and acquisitions with with you know two firms uh, separately. And then there's kind of the, the internal succession plan. What's how you transition equity down to next generation. So I'll focus on the, the, the former first. 
there's a lot of things that, that can go wrong. And I actually think as, as weird as it might sound, I actually think if, if things don't work out, you don't end up crossing the finish line. It's better to know that now and not get that deal done uh, than try to force fit something. So, you know, chalk that out as a, up as a, as a win, uh, even though it doesn't feel mm-hmm. like that in a lot of cases for, for firms that are advisors that, you know, don't, don't actually get a deal across the finish line uh, because the only thing worse than, than not doing a deal is doing a bad deal. Um, exactly. But as far as, yeah. yeah, as far as some of those specifics that you know, could go wrong, I, you know, I'll focus on the buyer side of it because you know that's really where you know things tend to to actually not work out. First, I think you know buyers often are just not prepared to have the the right conversations at the right time. I don't. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people out there who want to get in the M and A game, but they just don't truly understand what it takes to be prepared. And so there's just yep. this lack of preparation on the front end to have the conversations, know what to say, when to say it, how to run the process, when to engage, when to ask for financials, when to go through due diligence. I think it's just having mm-hmm. a lack of understanding of the overall process. I think first and foremost is, is, a, is a big problem for a lot of firms. They want to get in the game because it's a hot topic and they think it's a fast way to, to accelerate their growth, but they haven't done enough of their homework to really prepare to, to have those conversations. The, the second, the second big thing that I've seen, you know, where, which really causes deals to go awry and, and not get across the finish line, is actually the emotional, psychological element of things. Just like advisors in, in working with clients, right? You really have to have the right empathy, the right kind of behavioral, social cue type uh, skill set to to be able to to work with clients. I think the same goes with with an M and A transaction, right? Think about it from the seller's perspective. Mm-hmm. And this is a business they they likely have spent years, if not decades, building. Many of their clients are their closest friends and family, and so it's a it's a big deal for them to to do a transaction, especially if there's there's a lot of buyers that have done this many times. You know, sellers typically only sell once, and so yeah, I think not enough time for from a buyer perspective is spent on really the soft issues and and making sure that they're really conscious of what is the psychological or em- emotional impact of doing a transaction can be. And they focus too much on the process, too much on the numbers, too much on getting the deal done and not, you know, like I said, not enough time on the other things. Great point. And I can tell you in my experience, um, I've actually had Jason, people go to closing, if you will, you know, like buying a house. And years ago I had this smaller firm in a, in a state nearby, you know, Connecticut where we are, we went to closing. The person said, everything you've said makes sense. I should do this. I can't do it. And uh, I didn't, like you were saying, I actually looked at it as a positive because I thought, okay, if you're not ready, then the transfer of the clients isn't going to work. But after months and months of meeting, having lunches, you know, going through letters of intent, I thought we were ready. And it was a good reminder to me that people can go all the way up, you know, to the altar, so to speak, and go, I can't do it. And back then, I was even, you know, a little bit less experienced than I am now. So very valid point there. Um, yeah, and, and sometimes some of that is un- unavoidable. I mean, you just don't know at the end of the day, someone could change their, their mind, something triggers them. But I think if you spend more time really, you know, flushing that out along the process and not, you know, not on the front end, not on the, you know, every step of the, along the way, you just got to be conscious of that. I think you're going to do yourself a favor so you don't get to the finish line and then somebody pull the rug out beneath you. Right. I had one successful business client tell me that, and let me know if this is your experience too. He bought different types of businesses, but that the two times there were likely friction, which makes sense, was right around the time of the LOI, you know, your first pass at it. 
and then things can be quiet for a while. And then about a month before closing or two weeks, there's a frenzy. I'm curious if you've seen that human nature or can you comment on that? Because I've seen that happen too, where as soon as the LOI is done, there might be a pause for a while, due diligence going on. And you think, hey, this is going well. And then there's that mad dash at the end. If you can comment on that. Almost every deal I've worked on is exactly like that. Good. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's it's kind of you you have that mad rush to get to the letter of intent where you're kind of signing, and it's you know you're not you're not signing in blood. It's it's typically non-binding, right? Yeah. But it's it's you're 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 moving forward in good faith, and so everybody kind of once you get that done, you're kind of on a high, and then yeah, it's the due diligence phase that can really drag on with someone, and, and especially someone who's never really been through it before. Mm-hmm. Due diligence can be just a massive undertaking. And so, you know, if you're not cognizant of that and you're not coaching somebody through that, it can be daunting. And so, um, you know, that's where you, know, you go through this due diligence phase. And by the end of it, people are stressed out. They're maxed out. They're you're still trying to run a day job while also <laughs> doing this deal. And then, of course, you know, attorneys uh, love attorneys, uh, but uh, they tend to wait uh, and negotiate everything at the, at the 11th hour. And, uh, you know, even even the last deal we, we I worked on, uh, first deal for for Pure that we just announced is this week, uh, similar situation, kind of just last minute negotiation points, trying to get on uh, you know, weekend night calls with uh, with the attorneys to try and figure th- stuff out. Yeah, I mean, that's that that tends to be the case. And you know, trust me, I've been through this enough where I try to avoid that as much as I can and uh, generally do an okay job of it. But for the inexperienced, it can be it can be pretty challenging to try to get get that last uh, that last push through the finish line. Yeah. So in that, I just want to zero in, in that due diligence process. I think you made a good point. Is that something that in your experience, too, that would be helpful to tell the advisor up front? And maybe you do this at Pure. but Give them a time frame and say, here's the time frame we generally need, you know, to conduct it. And, you know, it can be invasive, but you got to have the right data because it's garbage in, garbage out if you don't get the right data. Do you find that giving them a time frame helps or it's just the interruption of their routine where they and their lawyers, right, or accountants have to take what they normally do every day and go, oh, now we got to spend this extra time you know, for the due diligence. So even if you gave them a time frame, is it helpful or is it just the routine gets interrupted? I think it is helpful, but I still think you're going to face the challenge either way, but it definitely makes a big difference. What I try to do with, with the, the, the transactions and the sellers that I'm working on is, uh, is not only give them a perspective on the timeline, but I actually create a timeline and a project plan right out of the okay. gate. Yep. So you know, we, do, we tend to do a kickoff call right after the LOI is signed and I try to walk through, not in detail, but I try to walk through what are the key milestones, the key items that we need to be focusing on, and, um, and, and what is the timing of those over the next, you know, typically it's a couple months, right? Four to six to eight weeks of due diligence. And so just giving them something on paper to look at, something for them to start to, uh, something that helps crystallize the process in their mind, I think that helps so that they're not kind of like, well, I didn't know this was coming. I didn't know that was coming. So the yeah. more, you know, like with anything, the more communication, the more transparency you have in the process, which goes back to, you know, you have to understand it yourself, right? And have full preparation on what is to yeah. come. But the more you can, you can put that out there for the seller. I think the more you're going to put them at ease. Um, is it going to solve everything? No, but it's definitely going to make a difference as you go through an eight week due diligence process. Yeah. 
and I have two stories to share on that that just occurred to me while you were talking. One was a client one. It wasn't an acquisition, but years ago, I sat with this client. We reviewed everything. The first year they were a client, the markets were good, fortunately, right? They saw some gains. And the next time we did a review, they were slightly below where they started, not traumatic, you know, but slightly down. And I remember the meeting wasn't, you know, going so well. And this is a long time ago, but I remember in an exasperated way, I said, well, I thought we covered all this. And the client said something brilliant that I never would have known, right? And we kept the client, worked well together. But she and her husband said, yes, you covered all the things about risk, but I couldn't tell you how I'd feel emotionally when my account was down, right? And I thought she was brilliant. She wasn't saying, I disagree with what you told me or I'm mad at it. She's saying, I didn't know how I would feel when my account was down in value. And I thought, bingo, brilliant. So that was one takeaway from that aspect that I learned. And another one I learned with an advisor too, a long time ago, and it touches on this letting go concept, but a lot of the advisors will say, every time you sit with them, well, in three to five years, I'll be ready, right? That's the famous quote in the M&A world. Talk to me in three to five years. And eventually the three to five comes up quickly. But sometimes, and I want to comment out this, I've seen tragically uh, advisors wait so long that health issues crop up. So it's tough enough to want to sell a firm when everything is going well, meaning your health is good, right? The clients are happy, the team. But if you can comment, I've, I've seen this in my own world, but if you can comment on when you've seen this happen, the complications that happen when somebody goes through an unexpected health event and, and what that can do to a process. And I'm sure you've run into something like that. More times than than I definitely care to admit, uh, it's it's really unfortunate. Unfortunate for you know the advisor, for their families, for the staff, for the clients. I mean, you know, coincidentally enough, just yesterday I had a, a, a ex colleague of mine reach out and say, "Hey, do you remember this advisor we were speaking to about you know a deal? Well, they were seventy one, and I just heard that they passed away, and they they never they never did anything." This is really recent that that I just yep. experienced this. And so, again, it goes back to what we talked about before, which is the challenges that, that advisors face and, and why they don't do this. Why do they ignore or delay the process of, of provide, putting a plan in place? It's all the things that we talked about. But it ultimately, it, it, they've got to take a step back and realize it's not just them that they're solving for, right? It's, it, they truly, if they, if they right. have... If they have staff, they're solving for their staff, right? I mean, think about the people yep. that you work with day in and day out. What happens if something happens to you? Even if you're not over 60, you know, if you're 40 and healthy, look at something as like COVID, you know, it could, could yep. easily come in and, and, and take somebody out. And, you know, where does that leave your team? Where does that leave their families? Where does it leave your family? Where does it leave your clients and their families, so, yeah, I mean, you know, the good news is there's a lot of things that, you know, a lot of solutions that have come into the space. I've worked, uh, you know, a co- couple different kind of business continuity, succession continuity type plans for, for mm-hmm. advisors. You know, getting some sort of buy sell in place is the very least you could do with, uh, yep. with an outside firm. But, yeah, I mean, th- I've seen it, you know, where yeah, I, I actually was a part of a process, you know, with a with a, a, an attorney who actually reached out to me. This was several years ago. Where an advisor, you know, mm-hmm. up and passed away out of nowhere, and literally overnight, the value of the business, you know, dropped by thirty to forty percent overnight because that that key advisor, the founder, the namesake of the firm, is no longer there. 
I mean, just the value of a depreciation alone should be enough to shake people into to action. Uh, but sometimes that isn't even, even enough. Right. And it is sad. I remember Warren Buffett made a comment one time. It's like holding, you know, a melting ice cube, right? This asset is depreciating uh, very quickly. And I've seen this myself. I can, like you said, way too many stories that we shouldn't have to tell, you know, about people waiting too long. Um, that's a big part of it. So I, wa- I thought I would give you a chance to talk about it. I noticed on, uh, on LinkedIn, you have a Columbia grad school. So if you want to talk a little bit about that, I'm always curious. Um, I went to UConn as an MBA, and I often joke that the basketball team got really good right after I arrived. Of course, there's really no correlation, but I want people to think there's one. But if you want to give any comments on Columbia, I'd love to hear. Yeah, it was an awesome experience. You know, I actually I did the executive program, which you know, there's different, uh, different schools have different executive programs. Columbia's is, is pretty unique in that it's basically like going full-time. Uh, you're doing the same amount of workload, taking the same amount of classes as if you were full-time, but you're yep. happen to be working full-time as well. Um, so I was, uh, I was in the Friday, Saturday, basically you go every other week, Friday and Saturday. Um, yep. so, and I was working in New York city at the time with focus financial partners and they were, they were gracious enough to, to give me the time off to, to, on those Fridays to go. And it was just a, a phenomenal experience. Um, you know, Columbia is part of the program. They require you, um, which is funny to say require because it's definitely a, a yeah. highlight of the, the, the program, but they require you to do an international uh, trip. Uh, and so as part of the program, I got, I got to go to Cape Town. I happened to also do a, do a class in Hong Kong. I, I was part of a nonprofit that did a, a consulting for a, um, a nonprofit in India. So I did a trip to India. So it was just yeah. a phenomenal experience. You know, the, obviously the education, it, it speaks for itself. Um, but, you know, the big thing about, you know, MBA programs, and you could probably attest to this, Tom, is you, you go for the network, right? You go for the people you yep. meet, the experiences that you have. You know, and to this day, you know, some of my closest friends are, are, uh, are um, classmates, classmates of mine. I was in New York a couple of weeks ago and, you know, got dinner with a, with a few of them. And they're all doing amazing things. Um, and so it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely a, an experience that, uh, you know, I hold near and dear in my heart. Great. And lastly, as I go to summarize, anything else you'd like to say to the audience about Pure Financial Advisor, what, what's up and coming, what you'd like them to take away from what you're doing? Yeah, the, the plug. Uh, I love it. Uh, no, so I, um, you know, listen, I, I, I've had a, a I, I would say a pretty non-traditional path to, to getting to the place I am today, right? Most of my career has been in mergers and acquisitions in and around M&A, starting in the industry in, with Focus in 2013. Then I jumped to, uh, to Carson Group and, you know, as you said, head, head of M&A there, helped build out the M&A department. And, you know, as now with, with Pure, you know, I'm, I'm not just an m and I'm, I'm helping with, you know, leading the operations, helping with um, kind of the financials, the strategic side of things. So it's a, a pretty unique uh, opportunity for me personally. But ultimately, the reason I joined Pure is because of what, what we're trying to build. You know, really, it's about providing financial education and, uh, and advice to all of those in need of it. It's the reason we don't have minimums. Uh, we we want to just educate people on being prepared financially, whether it's now or or for retirement. And uh, even if they never become a client f- with us, we are we are perfectly fine with that. We just want to help educate people and get people uh, in a position where they're you know they're financially secure. And so yeah, that that really resonated with me. But then you look at the the business model, fee only, fiduciaries. You look at what we've been able to do, you know, grown from to almost four billion in assets all organically. 
in 14 years, you know, there's yeah. not a lot of firms, you know, I, I, listen, I've talked to and looked at thousands of RAs uh, in my, in my career. And uh, there's not a lot of RAs I've seen grow organically like this. So you know, to me, it was a, a tremendous opportunity. And, you know, the idea behind me joining is if we could continue to grow organically, do all the things that we're doing to be successful, and then complement that with some inorganic growth, some M&A with select firms that really fit for our model and advisors that really fit for, you know, the ethos and, uh, and what we try to, to espouse in terms of the fee only and the fiduciary. Um, you know, I think we could be, you know, a true national player one day. And uh, obviously, it's pretty aspirational, but um, we certainly have um, you know, our eyes on, on being a, a true national player one day. Excellent. And you could reach them, look them up at www.purefinancial.com. Right, one That's word right. there. Yeah, I really appreciate. So some of the takeaways that I'll summarize for our audience, we, we talked about why owners typically wait too long. We've definitely covered the fact that some of them don't want to face their own mortality. I mean, I had a client once say, I don't want to get a will because if I get a will, that might mean I might die now next year, right? Even though there's no correlation. Um, we looked at advisors who maybe not prepared financially or emotionally to that. We've looked at why deals fall apart. Culture is such a big part of it too. We've talked about how in the beginning, it can seem like roses and whipped cream, but as you get through the due diligence process, some of the ugly warts come up and you're like, wow, this is important to figure that out before you get to closing. So those are some of the bigger things going on. And I think that private equity and the low interest rate environment has definitely helped a lot. And my only concern for the audience is, you know, these valuations going up to 10, you know, 15, 20 times EBITDA are great. Um, will those hold five years from now? And maybe just a closing thought, if you could, on that, you know, the EBITDA expansion part, because a firm, you know, trading at 10 to 12 times EBITDA can buy a firm at five times EBITDA and overnight, the one at five times becomes worth 10 or 12. If you could leave us with that closing comment on your thoughts in that area, that would be great, Jason. Yeah, I mean, so a couple thoughts. Uh, one is, uh, it is easy to get caught up in the, the the multiples that are being thrown out there. I mean, you said a 10, 15, 20 times plus. It's it's incredible to see the the, the money and the valuations that are being thrown out there. Um, but importantly, uh, those are for like the best and, and top breed firms in the country, right? So um, there's a very finite number of firms that are even qualified for private equity money and the type of multiples that we're throwing out. So don't be, you know, for, for the vast majority of the audience, the vast majority of, of RAs and, our, and advisors out there, you know, they're not even in the ballpark, um, just right. to be perfectly frank. Um, right. However, I definitely see multiple appreciation and expansion across the wealth, the, the spectrum, the size spectrum. So I've definitely seen, you know, firms that are 100, 200, 300 million worth a lot more today than, than they were in previous years uh, because of the things that we've talked about today. So, you know, the qu big question to me uh, is, is that going to hold? Um, and, you know, your guess is as good as mine. There's definitely uh, a lot of activity in the market today. My, my general thought is that, we will continue to see this at level activity, the, the, the valuations, the multiple. I don't know if they'll continue to increase at the, the same rate, right? It's kind of like college tuitions. At some point, nobody's going to want to pay you know $500,000 a year for, for their kids to go to school. Um, so at some point, we're going to see a leveling off. But I don't see at least the level activity and the valuations changing negatively for some time. There's just so much opportunity, so much fragmentation in the space. That you're going to see this this uh, this level of activity uh, continue for some time. Great. Well, thanks, Jason. 
Really appreciate your feedback, and I wish you continued success in your journey at Pure Financial. And so thank you all. Until next time, thank you for joining me on uh, the Succession Fit podcast. Have a great day.